The king is dead. Long live the king. An expression that is used in in monarchical uh, forms of government uh, to emphasize that although a monarch may have perished, there was a successor. There was an heir. The, the, the line of succession would, was not in danger. It would not falter. It would not fail. The king is dead. Long live the king. Originally, probably uh, spoken in France, maybe in England. A little debate there on Wikipedia. Not really important to me. But I understand the emphasis. I would love to preach this sermon in two parts. The king is dead. Leave you in suspense for 32 minutes and then declare to you, the king is dead, long live the king. (laughs) But you know the story. And so with eyes wide open, we approach this. Last week, when I first read my text, I thought of asking my friend Nick Sethman for a lab coat, a pharmacy student. We're not given to much gimmickry or or, uh, flair here at Heather Hills, but I felt like I was reading the coroner's report. That would be a nice image to put the lab coat on in front of you. It's important given the Gnostic heresies and the asceticism of John's day that he is making clear the point that Jesus really died. That is important. It's not unimportant. It is a primary theme of the passage. Jesus says he dies. He gave up his spirit. The soldiers come to ensure he's dead and do their job. Joseph and Nicodemus bury our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He did die. But he died in the body. And at the time of the cultural context here, there were heresies. That's why Paul had to write things like, Jesus came in the fullness of body. In him, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. There were people of the day who said, well, he didn't really come in the flesh, so he didn't really die. Do you understand? I mean, there were some reasons why John would have taken some pains to emphasize that. But as I studied the context, as I let the text speak to me, I could not come to you this morning with a Good Friday sermon. (laughs) And perhaps I've been colored all my life because we preach the death of Jesus on Good Friday. And then a couple days later, we have the fun service. And as I studied this week, I came to realize that this text is every bit about victory as much as the resurrection. And I hope this morning to help you see that today. The king is dead. I do hate it when heroes die. I want happy endings all the time. (laughs) I do. From Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, more contemporary examples, Act and the Titanic. Why do you have to die? (laughs) William Wallace and Braveheart, Boromir, Lord of the Rings. Most recently, if you're kind of a MCU geek like I am, Tony Stark, why do you have to die, Iron Man? You know, the king is dead. I don't mean to compare them to Jesus directly, but we are moved in a story when the protagonist dies, right? We want good to triumph over evil. We want justice and righteousness to conquer. Well, as we move into our text this morning with those thoughts, 
important for me to remind you that in the same way with the arrest of Jesus, and in the same way with his trial, it is important for you to understand the backdrop of the whole book of John, to understand that the crucifixion also is read through the lens of all of the things that have come before. John has been in very, very detail-oriented to emphasize several themes. And I could have preached five different sermons this morning. God's eternal, sovereign plan to rescue us is accomplished when Jesus dies. Praise the Lord. It's done. It, it is finished. Is not a, we, we, I'll get to it. But it's, it's not a, oh, I can't hang on anymore. I don't read it that way. It's a statement. Number two, Jesus dies. And he is God's king. Friends, the sign's over his head, right? Pilate wrote it, not understanding exactly what he'd said. And yet at this time, no one can see it. And they won't understand it for a few days, and for a few weeks, and for a few months, and for a few millennia. But in this moment, he is dead. Third thing, everything that happens, in every bit of it, the Old Testament is being fulfilled. Literally, prophecies hundreds and thousands of years previously given are specifically and literally fulfilled for verification and demonstration. And we get to see it. And we'll see some of it this morning. His death is not a failure. He has come what he set out to do. It is finished. He has accomplished his death. He is dying in our place. We're going to see this morning one more reminder. He is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who has come to take away the sins of the world. This is the theme through John. And then the main theme of John, friends, listen to me. God's people need to know, understand, and believe this. I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And did you, did you love that? He slipped it in again. We know John's the eyewitness. He wrote the book. His name is on it. And here in the middle, he says, oh, oh by the way, the one who wrote this was there. He, he saw his testimony is true so that you can believe. He slips it in a chapter early, and it's not uncommon. He has said this many, many times. Earlier, Jesus said, thinking about his sovereignty, John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. Can you hear the, the power in Jesus' words? And I have the authority to take it back up. This charge I got from my Father. He is accomplishing the eternal plan of God for rescue from the beginning of the book. The next day, they saw Jesus coming toward John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not long after that, um, they found Simon. And in testifying about Jesus and recruiting the first disciples, they said, we have found the Messiah. 
that word, the Christ, the sent one of God, the, the, the one who came. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, and I thought about Fred Macrino. We had a conversation just this last week about uh, how the Old Testament relates to Jesus. And, and this was so germane, these next two quotes from John. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All looking forward, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and they bear witness about me. This is not a, a, a failure of Jesus to die. This is the trajectory, the theme of the book. Even the Old Testament priest in trying to decide what should do with Jesus, was used by the Holy Spirit to prophesy of this trajectory when he said about his, uh, to, his, uh, to the Sanhedrin, to the, to the priests there, the ruling Jews who wanted to crucify Jesus, they said, you don't understand, it's better for you that one man should perish, one man should die for the people, than that the whole nation should perish. He didn't understand what he was saying, John said, but because he was high priest that year, God used him to testify that Jesus would die for the nation. He was concocting a sinister plan, but the Holy Spirit used that to help him to prophesy. So this is the backdrop of all of this, where we get to this text. When we read the crucifixion account, it is important we understand these are not isolated details. Every facet so important. And why is it so important for John to demonstrate that the death of Jesus is actually the fulfillment of God's plan? I love the thought of reversing the curse, rescuing his people. This is so important because at this time, no one understood. And the thought of God's Messiah actually dying is so unexpected, is so unlikely, is so far removed from anyone's expectations that they would labor to believe it was true. But again, John's aim is that we would believe, strenuously believe, continue to believe that Jesus, as God's King, has died for us as God's Passover lamb. Well, let's get to the text. The main focus is contained in verses 28 through 30. Not a, no surprise there. Let me read it again here. I want to point something out to you. I want you to feel it. I want you to understand that there's a word that John's been using. He uses it three times in this text, but he also used it back in John 17. Um, uh, verses 2 through 4, when he said this, Since you have given me authority over all flesh and to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I have glorified you on earth, having, here's the word, accomplished the work you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus, when he was beginning his high priestly prayer, he said, I did it. I accomplished it. This same word, accomplished, fulfilled, completed, shows up three times now in these verses I'm going to read for you. See if you can pick them out. They're not all translated accomplished, which is okay, but they have the same sense. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, it's pretty straightforward. There's this word finished. Jesus, knowing all was finished, was accomplished, said to fulfill, accomplish, say to accomplish the scripture, I thirst. And then at the end, he says, I accomplished it. It is finished. Before and after this high point, um, John wants us to understand that every part of the story underlines the fact that God's purposes are being sovereignly accomplished. Satan is working overtime. The religious rulers seeking to get in the way. This is what causes me not to read this crucifixion narrative with a sense of failure, with a sense of defeat. But John insists that we should read it with a sense of triumph. God has accomplished the rescuing of his people. Three things Jesus accomplished by dying. Number one, the king's death accomplishes a great victory. The king's death accomplishes a great victory. Well, let's talk about the sour wine just for a second before we get to the comment, it is finished. How does John write about what Jesus knew as he died on the cross? Certainly they had 40 years together before Jesus ascended. The other gospel writers talk about the fact that the wine was given to him, but only John includes this detail about it being a fulfillment of Psalm 69. Now, you might be confused here. Uh, there is another op- uh, uh, place where they offered Jesus wine mixed with a pain-killing, deadening substance called gall. Matthew 34 speaks about, or yeah, Matthew, um, I don't have the verse here, um, 27, 34, I think. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. He would not accept the, the pain-deadening stuff they offered him on the way to the cross. For he needed to fulfill the, the, the uh, enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. But here, in a thirst, listen to the words of Psalm 69. It is so touching. And he only quotes one verse. But you know, when a, Old, when a New Testament author includes a reference to, especially a psalm, an emotional cry. They kind of want you to hear the whole thing. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a few verses. Psalm 69, the beginning of the verse. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. That sounds like crucifixion. I know that sounds like drowning, but you would actually, because you couldn't breathe and the pressure on your lungs, you would die with the sensation of not being able to breathe. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I thirst. My throat is parched. You ever been thirsty? Really thirsty? Have that sensation? Cotton mouth? I can't imagine what Jesus is going through. I cannot imagine. He seeks for thirst. They give him some thirst, quenching, sour wine. 
The end of Psalm 69 says, Reproaches reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters I found none. They gave me poison for food, and my thirst, and the th- the, my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Of course, in David's time, there was the threats on his life, but this John uses and Jesus connotes to have a double meaning, a both and. It was fulfilled in David's time, but isn't that amazing? Thousands of years before. We're going to see this several times through this text. It is a subplot, main plot, that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. On the cross, just before his death, our Savior is concerned with fulfilling the Word of God. It's a great example for us. How about this word, it is accomplished? All three of these words, as I said, come from the same Greek word. To, to, it has to do with purpose and meaning, fulfillment. Listen to this quote from an author, a favorite author of mine, Jim Hamilton. In regards to this statement, it is finished. Jesus knows he has finished the course. He knows he has completed the work the Father has given him to do. Now, having accomplished the fulfillment of Psalm 69, Jesus makes the sweetest, most triumphant, most comforting declaration that any human ears could ever hear. It is finished. It harkens back to me of John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I know my own. My own know me. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. The righteous life has been lived. The greatest demonstration of humility and love has been accomplished. Exact obedience to every righteous requirement of the Father has been sustained. The full measure of the Father's wrath has been poured out. The cup of wrath has been drained to the bottom. The penalty for every sin has been paid. The substitute has taken the place of His people. And I couldn't be happier. Atonement has been made for every one of our uncountable transgressions. The stains are gone. The Father's wrath satisfied. The law's demands fulfilled. The pains of the people taken. Guilt is forgiven. Old is made new. Salvation is accomplished. Love is demonstrated. Truth is upheld. Mercy is lavished. Brokenness healed. Evil is unplugged. Satan is defeated. The promise of life is made. It is finished. <laughs> I, I've sat through so many Good Friday services with a, with just, a, I don't mean to be irreverent or say that the death is not sad. This statement is not a statement of defeat. It is finished. What response could we have to such an event? Friends, there is only one. Accept the truth of Jesus' sacrifice and believe it as John encourages you. Do not resist the forgiveness of Jesus. Love Jesus. Hate the sin that brought down the Father's wrath. Are you with those who crucify? Or are you with the one who was crucified? 
Are you with those who protect themselves and their earthly kingdoms? Or are you with those who get killed to protect and bless others? Do you live for yourself? Or do you live to die for others? The path to true salvation and great joy in Jesus. Trust him. He can save you. The death of Jesus brings a great victory. And I'm so thankful. Secondly, the king's death validates two great demonstrations. Two great stories. There are a couple of quotes here. But before we get to them, we'll just set the context here. Make a few comments. Why do they have to be off the cross by sundown? You remember reading that? The Jewish leaders are like, wait, we can't leave this on the cross overnight. It's a Passover, the Sabbath. There's a quote in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put by death. Hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So there was this urgency in the Old Testament law that they would get him down. Again, the idea of crucifixion, you might say, well, why do they come to break the legs? Most of you probably know this, but if you're on the cross and you're hanging there, uh, the weight of your own body really began to drown you and asphyxiate you. Uh, you didn't die from blood loss. I mean, it, was, it, it, it is a horrible way to die. So you would, against the pain, you would push up and seek to gain space so you could breathe. And eventually that became too burdensome. Well, a way to accelerate the death of someone on the cross, they would bring a a, a rock hammer and they would crush the shins. Well, obviously we, we can't push up any longer. And so it would accelerate the asphyxiation. Sorry for the graphic nature there. And they broke the legs of the first thief and they broke the legs of the second thief, but they didn't need to break the legs of Jesus. You know why? He was done. That's the context. John includes his little note there. We'll come back to that. I already alluded to it. Let me read it one more time. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth that you may also believe. Um, we have the idea of the spear then. They said, well, is he really dead? And we'll come back to this, but there's a piercing. You may have picked up on that because it's one of the two Old Testament quotes. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Okay, so we'll, come, we'll, we'll, we'll look at this in a minute. But again, I just want to point out to you, The importance to John, not in the main point of my sermon, but it's pretty conclusive, right? John says that Jesus gave up his spirit. Jesus testifies that Jesus is dead. And the soldiers come to make sure he's dead, and they do their job. I'm not sure, I'm not a doctor, but this spear piercing and the separation of fluids... I read a few things. And John takes great pains not to emphasize the physical suffering of Jesus, so I don't want to overdo that. But there is an element of this uh, medically that um, was the heart pierced or the lungs. I mean, it's, it's a little gruesome, isn't it? But he makes the point 
Like we got some evidence that he's dead. And then, of course, as I said before, Joseph and Nicodemus come and get Jesus and put him in a tomb. John's point is to make sure we understand that the body of Jesus died. You get that? I won't belabor the point anymore. Two great pictures. Jesus' death validates two great demonstrations. For these things took place, verse 36, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's number one. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Not one of his bones will be broken. Throughout the gospel, we looked at it before, Jesus has drawn, or John has drawn close links between the death of Jesus and the Passover lamb. Listen to a couple of Old Testament quotes. Exodus 12, the lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. It was reiterated in Numbers 9, verse 12. They shall leave none of the lamb until morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Now, I'm not sure exactly why, and it's not the point of my sermon, and we talk about it later, um, that it was important that none of the bones were broken in the Passover lamb. My point this morning is that none of Jesus' bones were broken. Thousands of years earlier, God has set up a sacrificial system in the Exodus, and by no accident, God has pictured Jesus throughout the book of John as the new Moses giving us a new Exodus, a spiritual Exodus. They led the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, and Jesus is leading us out of slavery to sin into the promised land. This is an, uh, 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 an allusion to the new exodus. And thousands of years before, this is not the more gripping picture, but it is an important picture. John confirming for the last time that Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. There's a second picture. And I'm down to eight minutes, and we only need to read Zechariah 11 through 13 and Second Chronicles 35 and 36 to really <laughs> flesh out this picture. So we will not be doing that. But I'm going to give you those again. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, 11 through 13, and the story of King Josiah from Second Chronicles 35 and 36. In John 19 here, John sets out the statement, they will look on him whom they have pierced as a quotation so jesus's body his physical bones were not broken and yet he was pierced now this was uncommon in a crucifixion heightening the uniqueness of the prophetic fulfillment i'm going to give you the summary in zechariah 11 through 13 listen to the similarities as i recap this I never really, until this week, some of these details had escaped me. Zechariah becomes the Lord's anointed shepherd of his people. And in an active parable, the people reject Zechariah. 11 verse 8. Zechariah and the people annul their covenant. 
reeking of the Jewish leaders and their dismissiveness of Jesus through the trial. Give us Barabbas. We have no king but Caesar. They break the covenant. The people pay Zechariah off with 30 pieces of silver. Can you believe that? And eventually the Lord tells Zechariah to throw the money to the potter in the house of God. Can you believe that? This is centuries, not, not millennia, but centuries before Jesus. Pleasure is just not possible that you could have such similar stories. Jesus fulfills this enacted parable of being the Lord's shepherd, rejected at the price of 30 pieces of silver, which eventually are thrown to the potter. Then in Zechariah 12, judgment is pronounced on the nations. But deliverance is promised for Israel, for Judah, for David. And the Lord says that he will pour out a spirit of grace and will hear the pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. Here's the quote. Zechariah 12.10. They will weep over him. They will mourn as one mourns for an only son. Are you kidding me? (laughs) This is beyond the pale of coincidence. Zechariah goes on to reference the mourning in Jerusalem in the plains of Armageddon. This is the reference to the events narrated in 2 Chronicles 35 in which King Josiah, who had been a figure of national and religious revival, one of, maybe the last good king, one of the last good kings. Became king at eight. At 22, began to read the law of God. I, should have, I think I'm getting that right. Um, restored the temple, tore down the temple sacrifices, the, the idolatrous practices. And near the end of his life, went out to battle and led the people to a great victory. But as he sat in his chariot, being driven away. An enemy archer struck him, pierced him, and he died. The king is dead. This should have been the time for Josiah when the people after the hard-fought triumph. They seek the battle's hero, the king who led them, who stood fast. His valor led to victory. The firstborn son, the descendant of David, who would ascend the throne, but the battle has been bought with blood. The king has been pierced and will not survive his wounds. This is beyond the pale of coincidence, isn't it? Zechariah presents a situation in which the king of Israel, Yahweh's earthly representative, is pierced in battle and God's enemies are destroyed and his people are saved. It is finished. This victory opens a fountain of cleansing from sin and uncleanness for the house of David and Jerusalem. 
Jesus fulfills Zechariah's prophecy at every point. He's the Lord's good shepherd in John 10. He's the true king from David's line. He's the firstborn of his mother. He was valued at 30 pieces of silver, money that was thrown to the potter in the house of God. The sword was awakened against the one who stood next to Yahweh. The shepherd was struck. The sheep were scattered. He was pierced, and they looked upon him. And this, this language is too similar Listen to Zechariah 13, verse 1. Last quote from Zechariah. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. And a fountain of water and blood. I don't want to over-spiritualize that. I don't want to allegorize it. My friend, I, I, I can't not quote this to you and let you hear it. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Praise the Lord. It is finished. So profound. So profound. Lastly, the king's death produces great devotion. Last section here. Great devotion. We have these witnesses of the testimonies and the soldiers and it continues here and John gives us some names after these things a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission came and took away the body and Nicodemus who earlier had come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe 75 pounds in weight something subtle there you might miss but what's similar about both men Joseph of Arimathea had followed Jesus kind of secretly. And when did Nicodemus come to see Jesus? At night. We always teach about Nick at night. Nickelodeon didn't have that first. It was, uh, it was the Gospel of John. There's a change in these men. The book of Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea took courage Another translation says, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Do you understand the risk? Even in his death to associate with Jesus, to associate with a criminal, a capital criminal. Do you understand the risk for religious men? The king's death produced great devotion. A change. They're out. No longer in secret. No longer in darkness. This is most important that Jesus is buried and that he is the Passover lamb. The lamb must die so that next week Brian can speak to us about his resurrection. And maybe the fact that it's Joseph and Nicodemus who retrieved the body of Jesus give us hope that at least some of the Jewish leaders will also turn to him even after the widespread rejection. We hope so. I invite the praise team back to the platform. Do we finish up here? Should invite our leadership team up front too for our uh, celebration of the Lord's table. The king is dead. What would you say? Long, well, yeah, long live the king. This is the sermon you'll hear next week. Well, verse 35 gives us John's application. 
We said it before, we'll say it again. It is as true for the whole gospel as it is for this passage. Every detail is recorded here for the very specific purpose of urging you to repent of your sin. Do not trust yourself for your eternal destiny. And instead, to believe in Jesus and to go on believing. Three things we need to recognize. Number one, Jesus, the weak and dying man, is God's king. He is accomplishing the eternal purposes of God. He is rescuing you from God's wrath. So good. Secondly, God is sovereign through all time. Do you get that? Do you see this old? I, I, I can't recap it. I'm, I'm overdue. Thousands and hundreds of years in advance, Jesus fulfilled planned suffering to the minutest details. And lastly, he is our Passover lamb. His death has opened the fountain of forgiveness. You need fear no judgment. None. You need not earn forgiveness. None. But rather praise and worship God's king who was lifted up for you. A great victory and a great demonstration should produce great devotion. Thank you.